Our text for this morning is John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. This is the word of Almighty God. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Pray with me, friends. Lord, please add your blessing, your Holy Spirit-empowered supernatural blessing to our study of your Holy Word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you hear two preachers who preach, and they preach two different messages Messages that are opposite, perhaps even opposed to one another. How do you know which one to trust? What, what shapes which preacher you follow? Perhaps you would choose to follow the one with the bigger ministry. Maybe he uh, has a big old podcast with lots of listeners. Maybe you pick the one with the more well-polished delivery. You want the orator. I surely hope you don't just pick the tall guy. (laughs) What makes you listen to one preacher over another? I would hope, as you think about this question, the answer would be obvious. When two different preachers have two different messages... Trust the one who rightly handles the word of God. Trust the one on the Bible's side. Trust the one who best points you to the Lord as he has revealed himself in his holy word. Trust the one who aims you at the character of God as that character is spelled out in the scripture. Now you may have to work to determine which person is rightly handling the word. You might find that both men are quoting verses from the Bible, but only one of those two has the meaning and the context correct. Now, you can find other things that will help you to know which person to trust, right? Is the person preaching the word a believer? That's probably important, wouldn't you say? If someone's going to tell you, oh, I know what the Bible says, and you're like, you don't believe the Bible? That's probably a problem. Is the person's identity that of a follower of Christ? Is is the person who's preaching a person of character? Now, please understand me. When I say that, that puts me in a weird spot because, guys, my character is only 
anything of any decency whatsoever because of the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that, right? I'm not good by nature. Sometimes I'm not good even when I'm supposed to be. I've even recently heard that someone looked at somebody else in this church and said, your pastor's ridiculous. I'm not going to tell you who Jesse is, who, who it is that said that, but your pastor is ridiculous. I believe that was the quote that I heard from Ben Tattletale. All right, so, but you know what? It's not my, if my life were marked consistently and constantly by things that oppose the Lord, that should be a problem. And if a man who's teaching out there has a life marked by things that consistently and constantly oppose the Lord, that should lead to questions, right? Figuring out whom to trust when preachers preach different messages, would you guys think that's a new problem or an old problem? In fact, as we read through the gospel according to John, we regularly see different preachers with different messages. We see the Jewish religious establishment with their fancy clothes, their political power, their man-made traditions. And then on the other side, we see Jesus, God the Son, preaching words that contradict how the religious elite think things ought to run. From John 5 through John 10, we especially see Jesus in conflict with the religious leadership. Story after story, chapter after chapter, Jesus shows that he and the rulers in Jerusalem are simply not on the same page. Chapter 5, everything got a little bit heated. Remember Jesus healed the paralyzed man, told him to carry his mat away, and it was a Sabbath day? The Jewish teachers got mad. Chapter 6, things got heated. Jesus offended people when he called himself the bread of life. The watching crowds had to pay attention to know who can they trust when thousands walk away and only a few stay. Who do I follow? Who do I trust? Well, here we are. It's John chapter 7. And it should not surprise you to hear that we're about to see one more conflict. Jesus is going to teach the people in Jerusalem. It's during the Festival of Booths. And some of the people are going to believe and other people are going to be hostile. Some are going to side with Jesus and some people are going to side with the establishment. Who do you think you'll trust? So there's a section here that a good preacher would preach. It's verses 14 through 36. And because you would find three beautiful points. Jesus gives you three unique reasons to trust him. In verses 14 through 24, Jesus points to his teaching, his handling of the word of God as a reason to trust him. In verses 25 to 31, point two of the message would be that Jesus would point to his identity as the Son of God as a reason to trust him. And then point three of the message, 32 to 36, Jesus would point to his mission that he came to earth to die and rise to save us from our sins as a reason to trust him. I'm not a good preacher, so we're not doing all that today. Today, We're going to look at what would be point one of a good preacher's sermon. We're going to look at a call to trust Jesus because of how he teaches the word of God. We're going to unpack verses 14 to 24. We're going to find four key reasons that we should trust Jesus. And in those four things, we're going to be reminded of four ways that 
our attitude toward the word of God, our attitude toward the scripture should mirror the way Jesus taught. First point, we're going to look and we're going to see that we should trust Jesus because he faithfully brings the word of God to the people and that's going to call us to think differently about the word of God that's available to us too. So if you're writing a point down and you're a Christian, what you might want to write is this. Point number one, respect God's word. Respect God's word. If you're not sure what to believe about Jesus, trust me, this point's about you should trust Jesus because Jesus respects God's word. Look at verses 14 to 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So it's somewhere around the halfway point of the week-long Feast of Booths. There's a massive crowd in Jerusalem, and Jesus goes into the courts of the temple and begins to teach. As always, the teaching of Jesus has the attention of the crowds, right? Whenever Jesus teaches, people are astonished. People are amazed. Can you guys think of some times when Jesus taught and people were amazed? How about when he was 12 years old? In Luke Chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, the Bible says, After three days they found him, Jesus, in the temple, sitting among the teachers. That means a 12-year-old sitting among the old guys, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Or how about Matthew 7, 28 and 29, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Or how about Matthew 13, 54 to 56, Jesus back in his old hometown. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? See, that's the kind of stuff people are supposed to be saying about their pastor, Ben. Whoa. He's not even buying it. Okay. If you guys were inside this joke, you would laugh even more. Um, Sometimes the crowds were just stunned because when Jesus taught, he taught like he was the boss, like he had authority. Other times, it was just the content. The content of his teaching floored people. They couldn't couldn't imagine how he could know so much. And in this instance, in John chapter 7, The Jewish leaders are amazed because he was teaching, though he was formally uneducated. When the Jews said Jesus had never studied, they're not saying that he was just teaching off the cuff. Literally, what they said is that Jesus was unlettered. See, the way you were considered to be a studied person, a lettered person, a person who really knew his ABCs, was was for you to be trained up under a formal, established rabbinical school. The Jews put a high value on people being accredited to teach. 
The Jews also made it a practice to avoid, if possible, ever saying that anything was true, unless they had a big, long list of teachers before them who had said exactly the same thing. But see, Jesus was no graduate of a rabbinical school. He didn't have a diploma on his wall. And Jesus didn't cite rabbi after rabbi after rabbi to prove that his doctrine was sound. So the Jewish leaders were skeptical. They were critical of him. Now, before we listen to Jesus' response to the grumbling of the Jewish leaders, I want to get something perfectly clear. Jesus wasn't formally trained But that lack of formal training in no way kept him from being a faithful teacher of the Word of God. Aren't you glad about that? Now, if you all know me, you will know I am pro-education. I'm for it. If there was a young man who wanted to enter into full-time ministry, I would be like, hey, if you get a chance, go to school, get your training. It's good for you. I treasure the things that I learned by the grace of God when I was in seminary. But, My time in seminary is not what makes my teaching either true or false. My education doesn't automatically mean that what I say is right and what you say is wrong. Now, I'd like to think that my education makes it easier for me to study. It may be easier for me to understand the Word of God. But my education doesn't make my conclusions foolproof. Likewise, there are other people who regret their lack of education. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt like, man, I wish I could have gone to school like that. I wish I could have a Bible degree of some sort. There are people that believe that they could never really understand the Bible because they don't have the schooling. But if you're faithful to study the Word of God... If you're faithful to let the Word of God say what it is supposed to say, just let it speak, you should never feel bad about any sort of lack of formal education. Jesus taught faithfully without seminary training. So can you. I'm going to give you one of those big, intimidating theology words now. I didn't even learn this word in seminary, just so you know. A doctrine that we embrace and I bet you embrace this, though you may not know that you embrace this, is the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. How many of you are all pro-perspicuity people? Do you think you are or not? What's your guess? You're pro-perspicuity. The word means that the Bible is understandable and accessible to every believer. Now, why they chose to call the doctrine that calls the Bible understandable... By an ununderstandable word is beyond me. But they did. I think it's because they wanted to look smart. But the truth is, friends, the Bible is accessible to all of the children of God who are willing to prayerfully read it and study it. If you're willing to put in the time, if you're willing to put in the work, God has given you His Holy Spirit to illumine the Scriptures to you, to bring them alive to you, that you might know God and know His ways. Faithful study of the Bible is not about a constant recitation of the opinions of other people. Faithful handling of the Bible is not limited to councils of scholars who can speak Latin. If you can speak Latin, good on you. But you don't have to, unless your mom and dad tell you to learn it. Sometimes we will cite other people who taught the Bible before us, right? 
A good Calvin quote, or Augustine, Sproul, or MacArthur, Piper, or Carson, those, those guys can be really helpful to make the teaching of Scripture clear. But quoting other people is not the ultimate. Study the Word of God faithfully. You let the text's meaning shine through, and you're going to be just fine. Verse 16 of our chapter here. So Jesus answered them. How does he know all this stuff? My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 16, Jesus told the Jews his teaching is not his own. He wanted the people to know, I'm not making this up out of thin air. Jesus wants them to know he's teaching the teaching of the one who sent him. What's the question you should be asking? If Jesus says, I'm teaching the teaching of the one who sent me, what should your first question be? Who sent you? John chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, two chapters earlier For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So who sent Jesus? God the Father sent Jesus. Jesus says that he is teaching the teaching of God. Jesus taught the word of God. And that, my friends, is a reason to trust Jesus. He didn't make a bunch of stuff up out of nowhere. He brought to you, he brought to me, he brought to the world the teaching of God. Now think with me for just a minute about the concept of the word of God. Jesus First sign of accreditation is not a diploma on his wall. Instead, his accreditation was that his teaching did not come from himself, but was from the word of God. Jesus brought the revelation of God to people. And right away, an application you and I can make is that we should trust Jesus because Jesus is only bringing the word of God. He's not relying on human opinions to gain authority. He is authoritative because he brings the actual word of God to men. But most of you who hear my voice already trust Jesus. Is that fair that most of y'all trust Jesus today? So let me give you the point of application for you. Like Jesus, you too should respect God's word. Do we have the word of God the way Jesus had it? Yeah, we do. Because we have the Bible. We have the very words of of God. We have the teaching of God that we can study, read, reread, memorize, proclaim. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, you guys know this passage, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, Peter had just been talking about all the great things he saw that convinced him of Jesus, and then he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from, man, from someone's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If we have the Bible... If we have the word of God, the Bible is a thing, Peter says, it's more sure than anything he saw with his own two eyes. And remember, Peter saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain of transfiguration. He says the Bible's more sure than that. We have the Bible, we have something Paul says is breathed out by God. What should we do with that? You bow to that. You surrender to that word. You respect that word. You proclaim that word. Today, make it a commitment of yours to be like Jesus. Make it a commitment of yours to tell others about God, but don't tell them about God by what you just think in your noggin. Have you guys ever noticed sometimes you think things that aren't true? Wives, ever notice your husbands think things that aren't true? Don't just tell people about God because of what other people have told you. Don't just tell them about God based on how you feel today or what your past experience is. Those are all fine things to tell people about, but you tell people about God. It's not about your opinion. It's not about what you think God must be like. Your opinion of God should not be, God must be exactly what I would do were I God. If you were God, you would mess it up. Instead, tell people about God by faithfully using the scriptures because those are God's holy teaching about himself. Let your understanding of things not be from yourself, but let your understanding be from the word of the one who sent you. That's what Jesus did. Simply put, We bow to the scriptures as our supreme standard by which we judge every belief and every action. You want to live your life in a certain way? You better be able to support your choice by faithful handling of the scriptures. Do you disagree with a brother or sister in Christ on Christian doctrine? Your discussion of that issue better center on scripture. Take opinion out as much as you can. Put the scripture at the center of the discussion because the Bible is the word of God and it carries the authority of God. So again, the point, respect God's word. Now, second point. Come to God's word ready to obey. Come to God's word ready to obey. This verse is a paradigm shifting life altering verse if you'll grab it listen to jesus verse 17 if anyone's will is to do god's will he will know whether the teaching is from god or whether i'm speaking on my own authority So Jesus is teaching the word of God and he lays out here a second way to understand that the teaching of Jesus is from God. He gave us a little test. You can call this test the doing God's will test. It's a clever name, I know. 
The one who truly wishes to obey the will of God will have for himself or herself a true understanding that Jesus is from God. The person longing to do the will of God will respect the teaching of Jesus and now the whole of Scripture as the word of God. Now, real quick, let me give a caution. Jesus is not saying here that there is a gap between himself and the authority of God the Father. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not trying to communicate to us that he is on a lower level than the Father. He's not doing that. Back in chapter 5, we saw that Jesus showed us this glorious truth that he is truly God and truly man. Jesus is both the God who is the authority and he voluntarily submitted to God's authority. And that will make your brain hurt. Understanding the nature of the Holy Trinity and the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ and, and as, as God and man at the same time, that's hard. That's why people make heresies from that stuff, by the way. So be kind with yourselves and others as you try to figure that stuff out. But when the Savior tells us his teaching's not his own, the purpose that he's making is he can, he's trying to say, don't say that I'm some nut job making up new doctrine out of whole cloth. No, sir. Jesus said that his teaching, better than being a man's opinion, better than being the endless recitation of rabbis from the past, it's the true teaching of God to man. Jesus said that he longed to do the will of God. Therefore, his teaching of the word of God is not self-centered. Jesus wanted to do God's will, thus his understanding of the scripture is pure. Jesus never taught or twisted the teaching of the scriptures because he taught the Bible for the sake of teaching the will of God. He didn't teach out of a desire to be famous or to draw crowds. He didn't, he didn't teach the Bible so he could get more Twitter followers. He didn't teach the Bible to gain political power. He didn't teach the Bible so that he could, he could climb a denominational ladder. Jesus taught the word of God with a fixation on doing the will of God. What's the difference? There's a lot of people, a lot of people who think they can approach Scripture with a kind of wait-and-see attitude. You know anybody like that? Are you sometimes like that? They'll read the Bible, and then they'll kind of weigh it. They'll look to see, I've read this. Do I want to follow that? Do I want to believe that? But the person who honors God isn't going to act like that, is he? The one who honors God will come to the teaching of Jesus, to the word of God, humbly eager to follow and obey God's word no matter how much it requires them to change what they think, what they feel, and what they do. And if you will not approach Scripture with a willingness, even an eagerness to obey, you will convince yourself that the words of Scripture are not from God. The one eager to obey will see. The one eager to obey will trust Jesus. The one not sure about it may struggle. This again is a point we should follow. When you study the Bible, study the Bible with a heart centered on doing the will of God. It's when you deeply desire to do God's will that you're more likely to interpret the scripture rightly. 
But if you look at the Bible looking for an excuse to do a thing that you've already decided you want to do, it's very likely that your mind will come up with a way for you to twist a a passage or twist a principle to allow you to do the thing you already want to do. But if you study the Bible with a passion for doing the will of God and the will of God alone, it's very likely that you will actually learn what it is God really has to say about the issue you're pondering. Does that make sense? I'll give you one, and and, and again, this is risky. Should I divorce my wife? Why not? the Bible says no. If I approach the scripture with a heart determined to obey God and my wife has not committed a marriage breaking offense like running off with some other dude by the way my wife's not here because she doesn't feel well she hasn't run off with some other dude Um, (laughs) that just hit me Um, sorry If she hasn't committed some biblical marriage-breaking offense, I just decide I want to trade her in for a new model. If I start looking at Scripture for whether or not I should leave my wife, and my desire is to first and foremost be submitted to the will of God, the answer is going to be blatantly obvious, isn't it? One man, one woman, for life, to the glory of Jesus. But what if I start looking with, with eyes that are only looking for a way to find some way to squidgy around and come up with something I want? I'll probably come up with some sort of stupid justification that would let me commit sin. If my will is not to do the will of God, I might twist Scripture. If my will is to do the will of God, I will see Scripture for what it says. If you want to know, is the Bible true? If you want to know, is the Bible real? If you want to know, what does the Bible want me to do? The first thing you've got to do is approach the Bible with a heart desiring to obey God. You go to the Bible with obedience in mind, God will show you God. Fair enough? That last bit was extra, but I hope it helps. Third point. Seek God's glory in God's word. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. So a third thing we see about how Jesus handled the scriptures is that he handled them with a desire for the glory of God. Jesus' teaching was not about gaining popularity, wasn't about gaining glory for himself. His teaching was about promoting the glory of God. What's the difference in this point and the last point? Not a ton, but in verse 17, we saw that Jesus was concerned about the will of God. He argued that anybody who truly wants God's will to be done is going to recognize that the teaching of Jesus is true. And he showed us that if we are to have faithful interpretation of the Bible, we have to have hearts set on doing what God wants done. But in verse 18, something else is at stake, the glory of God. Now it's not merely that you want to do what God wants done in general, but that you want to do things in such a way that when the thing that God wants accomplished is accomplished, God looks really gloriously good. 
Jesus' basic argument is that if he was a false teacher, he'd be doing things to try to make himself look good as a man. He'd be focused on man, not God. Because when we want to make ourselves look good, we will distort proper teaching to shine a light on ourselves and on our accomplishments. But Jesus tells us that his teaching, his miraculous abilities, they're all for the glory of the God who sent him. So we trust Jesus' teaching of the word of God because he taught it for the glory of God. And if you want your understanding of the word of God to be faithful, your purpose in study and your purpose in presenting the word of God has got to be the glory of God too. When you read a passage, when you try to understand what God's teaching you in that passage, you've got to make it clear in your mind that you want to understand the passage so you can live in a way that will most make God look good to others around you. You want to live in a way that most make God look big to the others around you. You want to live in a way that shines the light on on the Lord so that people say, wow, God really is stunning. That's not you trying to make yourself look good. It's not for you trying to make God look like what the world around you wants him to look like because the world has a very small God in their minds. You and I have got to make it our purpose to show the world the beauty, the infinite perfection, the absolute holiness and awesomeness of God in all of our beliefs and all of our actions. Fourth point, last point. Still with me? Oh, I'm so glad. Rightly apply God's word. 19 to 24. Rightly apply God's word. I love this from Jesus. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The final reason Jesus gives us to trust his teaching is that his teaching is given from right judgment regarding the scriptures. Verse 19, the crowd gets to go from abstract theory to concrete reality in sudden clarity, right? Jesus tells the Jews, you guys have the law of God. It was given to you by Moses, but you don't keep the law. Now, by the way, how do you think the Pharisees felt about Jesus saying, y'all don't keep the law? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Why are they not keeping the law? They're not keeping the law because they want to murder Jesus. They're coming at the word with a heart desiring to kill this guy that's growing in popularity and making them look like jerks. Now, Jesus hasn't done anything to merit death. Now, the crowd around Jesus may not realize that the leadership has already said they intend to put Jesus to death. See, back in chapter 5, verses Oh, I don't know, 16, 17, 18. So the crowd, when they hear Jesus say, they're trying to kill me, they're like, you're nuts. You've got a demon. Nobody wants to kill you. You're paranoid. They can't imagine anybody really wants to kill Jesus. 
And by the way, just out of curiosity, who was right there? Jesus saying people wanted to kill them or the crowd saying, no, nobody wants to kill you? Yeah, we're pretty sure about this one, aren't we, guys? Now Jesus says, all right, in case you don't know, I did one deed, one miracle, and they want me dead. What was the thing Jesus did that made them want to kill him? He healed a man on the Sabbath day back in John 5, a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years, said, take up your mat, go home. And the Jews saw it. They got mad. They said they wanted to kill Jesus. And that caused the crowd, man, they marveled. They were amazed at Jesus. But the leadership said, I want that man dead. Now, once Jesus points that out, people in the crowd were like, Oh, yeah, you are the guy they want to kill. Over the next few verses, Jesus then builds a logical argument. He wants to show you how badly the Jewish leaders misinterpret the law of God. He points out both the Sabbath day and the command to circumcise a male child on the eighth day were at that, they're both in the law of Moses. They were both legally binding. They were both important to the people of Jesus' day. Jesus points out the Jewish leaders are willing to forsake the Sabbath command in order to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day. They deem the observance of the circumcision law to outweigh the observance of the Sabbath law. We got to get that one, sounds weird, but I mean, we got to get that one body part correct. And if we don't get it right on the eighth day, it's a big honking deal. Next, Jesus just drops the hammer. If you all are willing to circumcise on the eighth day, even if that eighth day is a Sabbath day, what could possibly be wrong with Jesus not working on one part, but healing a man's entire body miraculously without work on the Sabbath? Surely Jesus reasons if the ceremony of circumcision is important enough to allow you to work on the Sabbath, the healing of a man paralyzed for 38 years ought to be enough reason to allow for miraculous healing on the Sabbath. Makes sense, doesn't it? Then Jesus clenches the argument here. Don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. You know what that is, that stuff I said earlier? That's Jesus going, don't just judge by what's in your noggin. Judge with right judgment. This is why we trust the teaching of Jesus. He taught with right judgment. He wasn't confused by difficult passages. He wasn't confused by the difficult ethical issues. Jesus taught with the judgment, the right thinking that helped him never to become like the Jewish religious teachers who were using the word of God like a club to hurt people rather than focusing on glorifying the Father. When you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, Christians, you need to be praying that God will help you to read it and study it with right judgment because it is easy to get carried away it's easy to fail to take into account the entire counsel of the word of god on an issue it's easy to fail to rightly interpret a passage because you don't study it in its context it's easy to miss the meaning of a text because you're too busy reading your own meaning into the text your own desires into the text your own ways into the text than trying to see what did the author actually intend me to learn 
So how do you read a text and actually end up making right judgment? I think you do what you see Jesus do today. Worry more about God's word than the opinion of other people. That's a good one, don't you think? Acknowledge the Bible is the word of God. The Bible carries the authority of God. You studied the Bible with a genuine reverence for the Bible as God's word. Do you approach it that way? Or do you approach it like a book that you say, I'll take what I like and I'll get rid of what I don't? That ain't going to help you. Approach the Bible with a genuine desire to do God's will. If you think, I'm going to read the Bible and I will follow what I like and ignore what I don't like, you're not going to get there. Study the Bible with a passion for the glory of God. A passion to do and think what makes God look really good according to what God says glorifies Him. Study the Word praying that God will lead you to right application of His truth. You know, all those things sound like they could be hard for us to do. But y'all know what else? Jesus did them perfectly. Five children were with me in Sunday school today, and we learned that Jesus lived a what? Who knows, kids? Jesus lived a perfect life. That's exactly right. Jesus read the Bible and taught the Bible perfectly. When the Jews questioned Jesus, he demonstrated that his teaching was perfectly from God and perfectly trustworthy. In fact... Jesus has always proved himself perfectly trustworthy in everything he ever said and everything he ever did. He is simply perfect. He lived perfectly. He taught perfectly. He died perfectly. Jesus lived a life that perfectly completed everything God wanted. He fulfilled all of the requirements of God's holy word. And then he died a horrible death. He died under the wrath of God. He didn't die because of anything wrong he ever did. Jesus died in order to pay the penalty for the sins of other people. If you're willing to believe it, Jesus died to pay for your sins. Listen to me. All of us have done things that are wrong before God. You guys know that's true, don't you? All of us deserve, if God gave us what we deserve, he should punish us for the things that we've done wrong. Jesus took death. He took a hellish death that he might pay the penalty that we owe. He died to take our imperfection and turn it into God's perfection. He died to give us the mercy of God. He died to show us the glory of God. And today, if you will put your trust in Jesus, turning away from sin, turning to God, Jesus promises you a brand new life. And if you've never done it, I would urge you to receive that life today. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. God, without you and without your grace, we have zero hope. With you and with your grace, we have hope of mercy, forgiveness, life. God, I would ask that as we 
sing of your goodness, as we sing of your greatness, as we leave this place today, that you will focus us on you and your word. Help us love your word that we might better love you. Help us approach your word with a desire to obey. Help us approach your word with a desire for your glory. Help us to have the ability and the commitment to approach your word to handle it rightly. And help all those things, all those principles, help us trust Jesus more because we know he did it all perfectly. Be magnified in our lives. Forgive us our sins and grow us in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.